Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Wade Matthew continues the series of messages on the miracles of Jesus, today looking at the resurrection of Lazarus. And now, here's Wade. It's amazing how the songs that were selected fall right into the message today. And I had nothing to do with that. All the songs that we heard this morning speak of the fact that everything we have was given to us by God. And that's important. If you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, we're going to be talking about the raising of Lazarus. Um, but I have a number of different things that I want to speak about, so uh, it'll be a little bit scrambled at the beginning here. You know, this morning at the breaking of bread, David Hook said that, can you imagine the God who, and then he went on to talk about supplies us with all of these wonderful things, protects us, looks after us, etc., etc. Can you imagine that God? The songs that we sang spoke of that God and how we have nothing without him. It also uh, hasn't passed my eyes that next week is Easter and we are talking about resurrection, the true resurrection of Jesus Christ, not the raising of man from the dead, but the Son of Man. And so uh, next week's message is going to be Uh, A wonderful message. I just know that uh, it's going to be uh, well received. But this week is a little bit different because it's talking about raising man from the dead as well. But there are certainly some differences between this week and next week. I'm going to ask you before we start to think about this funny little question. You know, in Psalms 50, 10 and 11, Joe quotes this very often in discussions that we have about the land owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns all of the birds that fly in the sky, etc., etc., etc. I'm going to ask you to think in your own mind right now, how many cattle is that? What's the number? I don't want to hear it right now, but just think about that, because I'm going to ask you at the end, how many cattle are on those thousand hills? So good morning to everyone. I trust that you're all resting in the arms of our Lord as we continue our examination of miracles performed by his son, Jesus Christ, here on earth. I want you to scan along in John chapter 11 because I'm going to give you sort of the message version. Uh, This is Wade's message version, you might say. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase the story as we go along because I don't want to speak specifically about the story per se, but there are some verses in the story that are really, really important, and that's what I want to bring out. So this is a story about Lazarus. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus, a friend known to be loved by Jesus. When Lazarus fell ill, his sisters Mary and Martha sent a message to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. While they expected Jesus to immediately travel to Bethany to attend to his friend Lazarus, he delayed two additional days. 
Now, you would expect someone who is close to make the utmost effort to be there as soon as possible. That's just what compassion seems to be to mankind. But there's another purpose here, and Jesus knows that purpose. As he traveled with his disciples, he had to clear up the misconception to them as well that Lazarus was only sleeping. In verses 14 and 15, he says to them, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Pretty strong words. It's almost as if he didn't care. And we know that's not right. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had already been dead and in the tomb for four days. And I don't think we want to think about what that might be like. But as Martha said, when she discovered Jesus on his way and she went out to meet him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus told Martha, your brother will rise again. Knowing that Martha thought he was talking about the final resurrection of the dead, He said to Martha in verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He who believes in me will live. Her immediate response to this was, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come down to the world. And then Martha went to see her sister Mary to tell Jesus to tell her that Jesus wanted to see her. When Mary met Jesus, she was grieving with a strong emotion over her brother's death, and that's natural. We all do that. The Jews with her were also weeping and mourning in compassion, I think, for Mary as much as for the death of Lazarus. Deeply moved by their grief in a public show of compassion, Jesus wept with them. All things come in time and all things come in a certain order. And Jesus understands that. He proceeds to the tomb next where he asks the stone that covered the hillside burial place to be removed. And of course, in those days, uh, many of the people, uh, as many as could be, were buried in caves and the Uh, entrance was sealed with a stone so that you couldn't get in there. And this was the case with Lazarus. Lazarus, pardon me. Mary showed a wavering in her faith to believe when she said to Jesus something contrary to her previous statement, Lord, by the time uh, we open this up, there is a stench for he has been dead four days. She's worried about the stench. I thought the first issue was she was worried about Lazarus being dead. But she doesn't show a lot of faith in Jesus here. Why did she want Jesus to be there in the first place? Jesus responds to her and all present in two very significant ways. If you remember back to another miracle in the Bible that we studied, I think Ted Bendel Uh, spoke on this, the uh, wedding in Cana, uh, when there was no more wine 
for the wedding party. And Jesus' mother simply made that indication to Jesus. There is no more wine. They have run out. And that was it. And then she said to the servants and to others around, do whatever he says. What did she expect? Did she figure that he would turn water into wine? Did she know that was coming? Did she believe in Jesus' power to do that? Is that why Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to be here at the tomb of Lazarus for the same thing, that they believed that he could bring Lazarus back? It's funny because their faith seems fickle. Jesus says to Martha, after she questions them about being four days in the tomb, Lazarus being four days in the tomb, he says in verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And furthermore, in 41 and 42, he explains indirectly, but perhaps even more concisely, as he looks up to heaven and prays to his father in these words, the significance of what he's talking about. Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. That they may believe that you sent me. I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. Do you feel that way when you come to the Lord? Do you feel that he always heard your prayer? That when you cry to him in agony, in anger, in anguish, for help, that he hears you? Do you feel that way? Do you hesitate? Do you think, he's not really listening to me? What is it that I'm doing wrong? Yet Jesus says here that, and I know that you always hear me. So what's the difference? What's the difference? Think about that. So Jesus spoke the words that needed to be heard to the crowd around him. But even more significantly, he showed action based on faith and on obedience and subsequently on the power that was given to him as the Son of God. You see, his faith never wavered. His obedience to his Father never ceased. And it is for that reason, and that reason alone, that he can say, and I know that you always hear me. Because he never wavered in his belief in God the Father. Lazarus, come out, Jesus said. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, Jesus told the people to remove his grave clothes and set him free. The interaction with Lazarus ends here. There is no record of any dialogue between Lazarus and Mary or Martha or Jesus after this event. And maybe it's not important. The important thing is that he was raised from the dead, that he was brought back. Perhaps the event itself is enough. God's word goes on to say, however, that because of this event, Many came to believe in Jesus. And you'll notice that this is the same 
after each of the miracles that we've studied, there is a reference to many coming to know Jesus. Not all, but many. So it's a wonderful passage, isn't it? I mean, to be raised from the dead, to be brought back, to be given a second chance, even if it's for one day or one hour. To say things to people that you meant to say, you would hope to say, but you never said. Now you can say those things. It certainly seemed to speak to some of those who were present in that day, in that time. I ask you, does it speak to you? What does it say? I want you to ponder a few points here as we reflect upon these miracles, and more specifically, Lazarus being raised from the dead. Our series on miracles began by setting the foundation for such events, and that is God's sovereignty, God's providence for his people, not only through himself, but through his son on earth. And that's important. His son on earth has that power as well. Regardless of the miracle performed, the audience or the setting, the purpose was to establish in the minds of all people an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and providence through belief in his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's why all of these verses keep saying that he who believes in me, that I am the resurrection and the life. So you can do all the praying you want. You can promise God all the things you want. You can give God all the money you have and borrow more from the bank. It's not going to be enough. God doesn't want those things. Because as he said before in Psalm 50, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. If you read that Psalm through, he owns everything. And you exist only because of him and his grace. So what can you do to get what Jesus has? Simply believe in Jesus. That should be your only thought, your first thought in everything that you do. And I know it's not. I know that we're human, that we fail, that we falter, that we very often turn away from God for periods of time. Hopefully they're short. And hopefully you bring them back to the Lord and ask forgiveness for those times when he is not first in your life. But we are human. We are frail. We are fickle. We are broken. I want to read that one more time. Regardless of the miracle performed, the audience or the setting, the purpose was to establish in the minds of all people that acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and providence through belief in his son Jesus Christ should be first and only in their every thought. That's what Jesus was trying to do with each and every one of these miracles. He wanted them to believe, to understand that he had the power. That only he had the power. That the power was given to him from God the Father. And that he was on earth, not of his own will, but of his Father's will. And he was here to do that will. 
He was here to be obedient to the Father. Let me state it another way. Through this story, Lazarus, God's word delivers a powerful message to the world. First, that Jesus Christ is indeed sovereign and has power over death. And those who believe in him will receive resurrection life. Lazarus was raised again, but he didn't receive resurrection life at that particular time. That was just bringing him back to life. That was a miracle that Jesus did to show people that he was the Son of God. But above that, it confirms the purpose of Jesus on earth, and that's to do his Father's will through the power and the direction granted to him by the Father. As I said before, there are many facets to these miracles and to this miracle in particular. It's interesting to note that every miracle or sign that we've examined calls into question the level of one's belief. Very often Jesus will say, do you believe? Before he does the miracle. Do you believe? Do you have faith? And they respond with words. This is the thing that I have a difficult time with sometimes. They simply say, yes, Lord, I believe. But we know that mankind's words are very often not true. We see that in the war in Ukraine. We hear two different sides. We don't know which one to believe. Probably both of them have got some things that are wrong with them. Some lies, some fibs, some stretching of the truth. But Jesus can't do that. And he can't accept that either. And it's important. So it calls into question your belief. And so all of the verses that I've read to you out of this passage that spoke about he who believes in me. It should bring you back to the other miracles as well. Because he doesn't ask this once. He doesn't ask this for one specific miracle or one specific event. He asks it each time you come into his presence. Before you start, do you believe? And that's important. And I think even as Christians, even as very staunch observers of God and his word, and doesn't matter how many times you go to study, His word, how many times you go to our Bible classes, how many times you speak at the front like I'm doing right now. We all waver in our faith. Every one of us does. It's something that we need to keep in mind. Jesus reminds us of this time and time again. It's paramount to believe. Paramount in our development as children of God. I don't think that God expects us to be perfect today. But he does expect us to continue to strive to be better each and every day, each and every moment. So if you make a mistake now, he simply wants you to ask forgiveness, to acknowledge the mistake and try not to do it again. Try to learn from that mistake. Try to move onward and upward. Here's another interesting point. This is not the first time that Jesus raised someone from the dead. So why are we studying this one? There are two other times. 
He did so for the son of the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7. And for the daughter of Jairus, whom he raised, as found in Mark 5 and Matthew 9 and Luke 8. Common to each one of these stories is that there is no interaction between Jesus and the deceased after the person came back to life. Only the indication that the word spread throughout the land and many believed. And many believed. And that's the purpose of doing this. It's not foremost in Jesus' mind that that person come back to life, but that people believe that he has the power to do so. That's not to say that he wants that person to die. We're all going to die someday. But he wants us all to be resurrected again in a second life in his presence before the Holy One. Here's another thing. All of these examples of being raised from the dead are different from the resurrection of Jesus himself. There is no shedding of blood. There's no brutal punishment. There's no clear experience of separation from God. As spoken in Matthew 27 46. Here where Jesus hangs upon the cross, he cries out in the ninth hour with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These two individuals that I just brought to your attention, the son of the widow and the daughter of Jairus, they died. They didn't ask, why did you forsake me, God? Or what have I done wrong? Or how can I turn this around before they died? They died. They simply died. And that may be the case for you. You may simply die. You may not have the time to ask questions of the Lord. You may not have time to beg forgiveness. You may not have time to reflect on the relationship you have with God, whether it's a failure or whether it's a success. You may not be pleased with how you treated the Lord while you knew him here on earth. But it's going to be too late. But in Jesus's case, he had that opportunity. He was separated from God, paying the punishment that you should have been paying, that I should be paying. He sacrificed not just his body, but he sacrificed his emotional well-being and his emotional uh, expanse by coming before God in this way. Those raised from the dead by Jesus were born into this separation. They didn't know any better. That doesn't mean that they weren't sinners, but it also means that they didn't suffer this kind of thing that Jesus is suffering. Jesus experiences it firsthand, and there's no payment for sins or forgiveness by God as experienced by Jesus. Clearly, without the experience that Jesus goes through, 
relative to his death and his resurrection, none of the previous miracles would matter. Because it's all about his death and his resurrection. Jesus made the statement that I am the resurrection and the life. He came to this earth to do the Father's will. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is John chapter 6, verse 38. When Jesus was praying to the Father in anticipation of his upcoming death and his suffering on the cross, and imagine what that must have been like. He uttered the words, not as I will, but as you will. And that's in Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine. The Father's will was for Jesus to die for our sins. And Jesus was obedient unto the cross. He fulfilled his, God's, his Father's will. And that's in John 19, 30. John eleven twenty-five and 26 says, we're back in the middle of the chapter that deals with Lazarus. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ receives spiritual life that even physical death can never take away. Can we apply anything to our lives from this passage? I want to close with this thought. And we'll get to the cattle thing in a minute, but uh, in a roundabout way. As I said before, we're a fickle people. We waver so easily. We believe when it's easy and when it suits our own needs. But as Jesus indicated, that's not enough. It begs the question, do we truly believe? And more importantly, do we show it? Notice that we attempted to set the foundation for this group of miracles under the context of sovereignty and providence of God for my life. Those were the first two topics that we dealt with. We were trying to set a foundation there. Such a base will make God foremost in your mind and heart and soul because it is in specific reference to your life, to my life. It's not just a God way up there doing things that really don't matter or we're under the umbrella and so we all get grouped up together. It's individually. He did this for you. If you were the only one here, you're the one he did it for. It's profoundly personal. And I hope that comes out in the miracle. That it's not about a group of people. It's not about the Israelites. It's not about the Gentiles. It's about you. The basis of this may be something called hidden in plain sight. And I'd like to paraphrase a passage that I read recently in a publication about investing opportunities. And I know it's got nothing to do with that, but we are investing. We're investing ourselves in God, in Jesus Christ. Pardon me. The passage said, It's human nature. While never ceasing to marvel at the world around us, even the most extraordinary can become ordinary over time. There's a phrase for it, which we all know, hidden in plain sight. But once in a while, we get a chance to see things differently. We all acknowledge that God fed his people in the wilderness with manna and quail. How many quail? Do you know? 
A million? hundred thousand? No idea? Let me go further. Do you know that Tyson Manufacturing is the largest U.S. producer of chickens with the producing, processing capacity of approximately 47 million chickens a week? A week. That's 8 billion chickens a year. You didn't supply them. Tyson didn't supply them. Those are gods. They're on the hill with the cattle. And I don't mean that lightly. I want you to think about that. It is so easy to become wrapped up in this thing about God and to no longer have the awe, the respect, the fear that you once had when you first came to know him. This is a God that is so far above and beyond you, you can't even imagine it. Eight billion chickens a year. Above and beyond that, this processing plant, this is one processing plant, by the way, or one processing company, I should say. They process 155,000 head of cattle a week and 469,000 pigs. Multiply that by 52. That's a pretty big number. So how many cattle are on God's hill? It's a big number, isn't it? Do you respect him anymore now? Do you fear him anymore now? Are you in awe of him anymore now? You see, we shouldn't waver. We shouldn't be fickle. Because this is the God that has always been. This is the God of the Old Testament of the Israelites. This is the God of the New Testament of Jesus and the disciples. This is the God of us today. And he will be God tomorrow. Whether you like it or not. Can you break that? You know, it's still God who supplies our every need. And I do pray that you're in awe of him. A God that can produce so many chickens and cattle and pork. You say, well, that's food. That's great. He supplies that. Sure he does. He also supplies the gas that you put in your car. Do you know how much you consume of that? probably don't want to know. Eight billion barrels a year. That's a lot of oil coming out of the ground. For what? For your pleasure. For your enjoyment. It doesn't further your walk with God, but yet God supplies it. I look around here and I see all of you and I think most of you, I don't know where you all live, but most of you, I've seen your home. You have a pretty comfortable house. It's a house that has furniture in it. It's a house that protects you when we go through winter like we just went through with snow all over the place. It's got a kitchen in it that you cook those millions and millions of chicken every year. He supplies the electricity that cooks the chicken. And as Jesus said, all you have to do is believe. Yet it's so difficult for us to do that. We're complacent in our thoughts towards God. 
Perhaps we've lowered him ever so slightly each and every day, each and every time we experience something like what I've just talked about. To be more in step with God, perhaps. That's what you keep telling yourself. But at the same time, we're elevating ourselves to a level that is more equal with God. And that's not right. As we feel more and more self-sustaining with each generation, our faith in God really is questioned. In short, we have gradually made him our equal. We have hidden him in plain sight. And that's sad because he's always been there. And Jesus has always been there. And so when I think of these miracles and I think of Jesus and he keeps saying, if you believe in me, the message was right there. Jesus was right there. They saw the miracles. They were right there. And yet many didn't believe. What did they need? What could be added to that message that Jesus wasn't giving them? Many times, Jesus and God is hidden in plain sight. And that's sad. All of this talk by Jesus about sovereignty and providence by Jesus was done so that he would not be hidden in plain sight by those who truly seek him. So as we close, I ask you to set your mind on things above, to adjust the focus of your attention so that you do not become distracted by things that are less important for any longer than is needed, so that they occupy the right proportion and amount of time in our lives. And I'll just close with one more thing. If you reflect back on Jesus in any conversation he had with anybody, you will often think to yourself, he was sort of curt, He didn't really elaborate. There were more things he could have said. When people questioned him, why is it a one-word answer, or why is he off on a tangent that people just don't seem to get? And I believe this is why, is that Jesus is focused on one thing, and one thing only, and that's the God above. So this miracle about raising a man from the dead, and it's the last of the miracles in the book of John, by the way, before Jesus goes and does this in true fashion, before he experiences death and resurrection, uh, a topic that we'll speak on next week. Uh, It's wonderful to know that God has recorded it for us in his word and that regardless of how fickle you are today, you can be better this afternoon. You can be better tomorrow. And all you have to do is believe. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Lord, it's hard to imagine that you could make it any more concise for us. It's right there, hidden in plain sight, and yet many of us don't get it. And even those of us who did get it, we have softened the blow somehow, Lord. We have changed the message somehow. And we have faded slightly away from you. Help us, Lord, to come back to you if we did indeed know you or do indeed know you. Help those who do not know you to make this leap of faith and to come to you and to believe in you and you alone. To understand that all that they have this very day, all of these chickens, all of this food, all of these 
niceties, houses and electricity and heat and protection is all because of you. There is nothing we can add or provide to it. Through your grace, we have all of that and much more. We have eternal life with you if only we believe. Lord, we pray that we're able to see things differently today a little bit. We pray that things will not be hidden in plain sight anymore. And we pray, Lord, that we will do like Jesus, not only speak the word, but act the word. In all that we do, Lord, may we emulate your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Father, we just bow in prayer before you. We are thankful for your grace and your love to us. We are thankful for your provisions to us, even though we do lose sight at times of your grace, the magnitude of your love and your compassion. We realize, Lord, that we do fall and we stumble. We also realize, Lord, that you do see that stumble and you do see that fall and you are compassionate and you are loving to us. And so we thank you for your grace, your grace that seems to be never-ending, your unconditional love that doesn't have restrictions upon it that would cause us to feel as though we're unloved when we are unlovely. So we just do praise you, Lord, and may the thoughts expressed today motivate us to be more grateful and more receptive to the spirits leading in our hearts that prompt us to say thank you. And even in our sinfulness, Lord, we maybe just echo the words, I love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time. <laughs>